Dr. Nagel, a Rowan University researcher, is closing in on a blood test to detect Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, cancers, and other diseases by searching for the autoantibodies created by the disease processes. The test has proven to be remarkably accurate in research trials and has the ability to accurately assess the stage of disease. More importantly, it has the potential to detect preclinical disease, which would give physicians an opportunity to intervene with lifestyle changes that may delay or defer the onset of symptoms. So really, how close are we in delaying or deferring the onset of symptoms in Alzheimer's disease? I'm Dr. Jennifer Cottle, host of Everyday Family Medicine on ReachMD, and with me today is professor and researcher Dr. Robert Nagel from Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine. Dr. Nagel, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Alzheimer's disease is notoriously difficult to diagnose properly. Can you tell us what led you to investigate autoantibodies and looking for answers? About 10 years ago, I was doing a lot of pathological work on Alzheimer's disease where we would take brain slices and we would look at the pathology in an effort to be able to reveal the mechanisms of disease. For to me, the mechanism is rooted in the pathology. While doing that work, we noticed, again, stumbling over it like most scientists do, we noticed that in all regions of Alzheimer's pathology, there were neurons that were coded or attached to uh, antibodies. And the antibodies, uh, the only way the antibodies could have gotten there is if there was a blood-brain barrier breakdown. And that led me to focus on the antibodies to find out what is it that makes them bind to those neurons that are primarily affected by the disease. That's really interesting. And it seems as though autoantibody tests can actually be applicable to a broad range of diseases. So is this sort of what you had in mind when you went into this? And, and really, how do you expect that this science might eventually be able to be used? After we realized that the antibodies were binding to the neurons, our initial goal was to go and find out what were their targets. And so we needed a way to screen the blood for antibodies to find their targets. And, and it just so happens, just by a stroke of luck, they were right in this stage of perfecting a new technology called human protein microarray technology, where proteins or antibodies can be printed or spotted onto a glass plate or slide, and then you can use them to test sera. So we originally got a hold of, uh, there was a company that was manufacturing these microarrays that had as many as 10,000 proteins on them which represents about one-third of all the proteins that humans have in their bodies. And we thought that this would be a good place to start to see if we can identify what antibodies were binding to the neurons in the brain. When we did this, though, we discovered something unexpected, which is we were able to detect the fact that everybody is walking around with literally thousands of antibodies in their blood that we didn't know were there. These are autoantibodies that attack yourself or bind to things from yourself. And there were the human protein microarrays revealed that there are thousands of them. And everybody has them regardless of age, sex, or disease. So we did a study to test whether the presence of disease increases the number of antibodies, and they did. And that's how we got into the disease, uh, using this for a disease technology. Clearly, people, physicians, patients, researchers have a vested interest really in understanding the cause or contributing causes to diseases like Alzheimer's. Can you really kind of put this into context for us and, and tell us then what those findings really might mean for the, for the larger world and, and, and the future as we know it with regards to some of these conditions? We now think that because of some of the work that we were doing that some of the autoantibodies that are present in our body can be causal to disease. We all know 
which is a thing called autoimmune diseases. And that's because you have an autoantibody that is causing some damage in the body that gives you some type of symptom. But now that we have all these other autoantibodies uh, that we're detecting, and we can see them rise in tighter or amount in the blood in the presence of disease. So if you have kidney disease today and you didn't have it yesterday, the presence of kidney disease means that the tissue in the kidney is degenerating and producing debris, and that debris spills into your blood. Of course, your immune system sees the debris and then produces antibodies to clear that kidney-specific debris. And that's the whole basis for the test that we're developing, because that means if you have a disease, you have an elevation of antibodies to clear the debris products, and we detect that elevation. Now, what that does is that gives you some idea by identifying the antibodies and telling what type of debris you have, that tells you a little bit about the disease pathogenesis. It shows you what is breaking down. And it turns out also that we found that people have some autoantibodies that may predispose them to a particular disease. Right now they might be healthy, but they could have antibodies in their blood that would cause neurodegenerative damage if the antibodies were able to get to the neurons that they would bind to. Luckily, we have a blood-brain barrier that protects us from that for most of our life. However, we all know that as we get older, there are aging-associated changes in our blood vessels that make our blood vessels permeable in the brain. So things can begin to leak out late in life. And if the thing that leaks out is an antibody and it does bind to some brain neurons, it can then trigger a cascade of pathology that we now describe as neurodegenerative diseases, and Alzheimer's is one of those. So is this what you mean by what you're researching and developing may actually impact preclinical diagnoses? Is that how this is connected and related? In the case of Alzheimer's, it's well known that we're limited to being able to diagnose based on symptoms. When you have a patient who comes into the doctor's office for the first time because they're doing crazy things like putting the telephone in the freezer or something like that, or not buttoning their shirt correctly or anything like that, these patients, they have a very early stage of Alzheimer's disease. It turns out that only 60% of those people that show up in the doctor's office on that day really have Alzheimer's disease. And the other 40% have something else that looks like Alzheimer's, and it could be either a drug side effect, it could be poor vascular perfusion of the brain, or it could be chronic depression. So we need to know which one of those it is so we know how to treat the patient. And so being able to detect Alzheimer's-driven mild cognitive impairment when the patient first walks into the office will dictate their treatment. What might be some of the limitations, though, of this method that you're working on and that you're researching? I have to say, at this point, we haven't found any, and I'm really happy to say that. We have tried this now from our initial try, which is on mild-moderate Alzheimer's. We then went to see how early we could detect it, so we just finished early-stage Alzheimer's disease, and we have very good results, very close to 100%. Michael J. Fox Foundation found out about what we were doing, and they funded us to do studies on Parkinson's disease. We started with mild-moderate Parkinson's, and we were able to do that, and then we went to very early-stage Parkinson's, and we just published uh, those findings about three weeks ago and with very good results, greater than 90% identification capability. And then, of course, we've done pilot tests looking in the future for multiple sclerosis, early-stage breast cancer, I have a small project we just completed on psychosis with King's College in London. And so we're batting a 1,000 so far, which is pretty exciting. So I haven't found any limitations that way. 
And it seems to be very sensitive. And of course, if it all pans out, it should be very cost effective to do. Then let's move to the next step then. I mean, it sounds like you are finding really interesting and, and good results with the research that you're doing. What would the next steps be in terms of drug development, clinical trials, and things of that nature? The goal is always to diagnose people as early as possible. In Alzheimer's disease, the uh, disease is known to start about a full decade before people are aware they have it. So it's brewing in their head for all that time. Uh, But that's the pathology. Our test detects the pathology. It doesn't require symptoms in order to diagnose. So we now can penetrate into that first decade window that has been inaccessible up to this point to give early diagnosis. So that's where we're really at. And once we are able to diagnose people early, it offers the options of other treatments. For example, if Alzheimer's, which I believe to be true, is mostly a vascular disease, then there are other things people can do at the age of 65 when they retire instead of sitting on the couch and becoming quiescent and watching television. They should actually join a gym and keep cardiovascularly active. And if I had a history of Alzheimer's in my family, and I had an inkling that I was at risk for Alzheimer's, it would scare me into doing something like that. So if we could do nothing, it doesn't require medication at this point. It requires a change in lifestyle. Eat well, exercise regularly, all the cardiovascular positives that we promote for people to do. Only 2% of people at the age of 65 do any cardiovascular exercise at all. That's where we really need to make a change, and we can do it now without a drug. What's been the response of not only your colleagues in the research community, but patients and physicians? I'm actually curious as a physician, have you ever gotten anybody say they would rather not know if they were predisposed? And to your point that you just made, you said, you know, there's many times that we can make some lifestyle changes that may help us, but have you gotten any pushback or any, any concerns? It has been the subject of much discussion over the past 10 years or so. There are some disadvantages to knowing. There's a possibility that if you find out you have a neurodegenerative disease 10 years earlier, that could throw you into depression, which would then mean your quality of life for the next 10 years are not that good. However, to answer that question, there was a study done at Tufts University a number of years ago, I think about five years ago, and they asked a question that went something like this. If you had the option of taking a diagnostic test for Alzheimer's disease that was not covered by your insurance carrier that you would have to pay $450 for. So you'd have to pay it out of pocket. And you knew that there was no treatment for the disease. The question is, would you really want to know? 70% of the people said yes, which was surprising to me. But the reason why I think that happened, from what I understand, it's for people who want to do planning. They want to plan their finances. They want to make sure their, you know, all of their inheritances are set up, that, that they have the option of doing all that they can do. They ha- also have the hope that a cure will come before they succumb to the disease. Uh, so th- there was a lot of positive things that they wanted to do. But I was, I was totally shocked by 70%. I would have never thought it. But that is the truth. So what we look down the road for this diagnostic, what we see happening is that we would like to develop this test, take it to the FDA so we can get it approved, And the idea would be sort of pie in the sky that everybody would take this test on an annual basis. So every year you would go to your family physician and you would have your blood test taken for your annual workup. And you would take this test and see if you have any signs of neurodegeneration brewing in your brain. And then maybe you start at 65 and you go to 70 and every year it comes up blank. And then one year maybe it comes up slightly positive. And the doctor will say to you, oh, we're detecting signs of some kind of neurodegeneration somewhere in your brain. It could be Alzheimer's related. And then the patient would say to you, well, all right, doctor, what do I do? 
And the answer should be, well, we have a good evidence that there's a strong vascular component here. We can't cure it, but you sure might be able to slow it down by keeping your blood vessels healthy, preventing blood-brain barrier breach. If that doesn't happen so much, at least you're going to be cardiovascularly healthy and you'll uh, improve the, the last years that you have left you know, to the best of your ability. Dr. Nagel, can you tell us what other methods are being investigated at this time? Because Alzheimer's is such a huge problem, and I'll just focus on Alzheimer's here, we're very worried about it and what its future is going to be for for the American public. And so there's a lot of people trying to figure out ways to, to diagnose it as early as possible. Some of the methods that are used, there's been a tremendous amount of effort on developing and refining various types of brain imaging methods, much more sensitive so that you can detect even very subtle changes that occur in the brain. So there's a whole group, a huge group of people that are working to resolve that. And that's a type of biomarker, brain changes that can be seen on an MRI or a PET scan that's a biomarker. There's a number of amyloid. Amyloid is the material that accumulates in the brain during Alzheimer's disease. And there's a number of amyloid imaging techniques that are are being used, and, and they have some efficacy with that. And there's also a large number of laboratories that are trying to make use of body fluids in order to pick up biomarkers that spill from the diseased area of the brain into the blood or the urine or the uh, cerebrospinal fluid or even the sputum. So we're doing blood-based diagnostics because we're using antibodies in the blood. There have been, there's been a lot of work in the past 10 years on cerebrospinal fluid-based tests, and they've been actually quite good or quite accurate. The only disadvantage there is it requires a spinal tap. And of course, uh, people are not really thrilled about getting a spinal tap, so a little reluctant there. And also, we have the problem of, of whether or not that type of procedure can be done all over the United States and in all places that might not have the resources to do it. So a blood test is certainly better because it can be uh, done pretty much everywhere. And finally, can you tell us where you are in the stage of your particular test that you're developing? Where are you in the stage of actually getting it approved? And how is that process going? We're moving along with it. We've done what we call the proof of concept phase where you actually uh, take a good number of patients and you show them that you have uh, some kind of accuracy with it. And our accuracy has been very good. We're very pleased with it. What happens after that is that one of the things we have to demonstrate, we want to demonstrate before we approach the FDA, is what's called a therapeutic efficacy test. So since the concept behind our diagnostic is that it detects autoantibodies that are produced in your body in response to the presence of disease, That would mean that if a patient was taking some kind of therapy to treat the disease and hopefully make it go away, if the treatment was successful, then the disease would go away and the autoantibodies would drop. And we would see if you compared the before and after test when they first came in and they had the disease and there was a lot of autoantibodies, and now when they've been cured, essentially, hopefully, and there's less autoantibodies, you get a biochemical confirmation that the therapy is actually working on on the patient. Once we have that, we are now going to approach the FDA, and the FDA is pretty stringent where they require you to do many things like they will go to the FDA and they may say to us, well, you're going to have to show us in 500 patients or 1,000 patients, and we're going to tell you who, what patients we want you to use. These got to be very well clinically characterized. It's sometimes hard to get those patients. The other thing that has to be done is we have to contract what's called a GMP facility. It's a sort of a good laboratory practices facility where you contract another independent company that has no stake in what you're doing. You have to pay all their bills and hire them and their research team, and they have to duplicate exactly what you did by themselves. You know, you can help them or direct them, but they have to do it. 
and they have to be able to generate using the same samples you do, get the same results you reported to prove to the FDA that there's no bias or anything like that, that the test really does work. That process is a very expensive one where you have to hire the companies to do that. So the, right now for our diagnostic, we estimate that the cost to be able to move to the FDA and get FDA approval is around $5.5 million per diagnostic test, which is hard to get, of course. Well, just in closing, how important is this research to you? Why is this something that you really feel strongly with going forward with? Well, on the one side, you know, I love to do research. I mean, this I feel like a kid in a candy store all the time, and I've always loved it, and I, I've followed my passion to do it. But for this disease, um, I have it in my family. So on my mother's side, she had two brothers who had Alzheimer's disease. Her mother had Alzheimer's disease. My father currently has Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's. And uh, my wife's mother, is she's been in a uh, nursing home for about four years and hasn't known my wife for five. I feel like I have something I have to do. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nagel. I really appreciate you coming to ReachMD today. We're so delighted to have you here. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill, and you've been listening to Everyday Family Medicine on ReachMD. To download this podcast and others in the series, please visit us at reachmd.com slash everydayfamilymedicine. And we encourage you to like, share, and comment on this podcast. Thank you for listening.